So this morning, we're continuing our series called Unstuck, How the Apostle Paul Changed the World. And I want to start this morning by telling you a story. One Sunday morning, the pastor noticed little Alex staring up at a large plaque that was hanging in his church's foyer. The seven-year-old had been staring at the plaque for some time, and so the pastor walked up to the boy, stood beside him, and said, "'Good morning, Alex.'" "'Good morning, pastor,' replied the young boy, focused on the plaque. "'Pastor McGee, what is this?' Alex asked. "'Well, son, these are all the men who have died in the service,' replied the pastor." Soberly, they stood together, staring at the large plaque. Little Alex's voice barely broke the silence when he asked quietly, Which one, the 9 o'clock or the 10.30 service? You see, this is a really sweet story of something that happens a lot of times in communication with people. Sometimes we can explain things to someone who has a different cultural meaning of words than we do. And so that can create a lot of confusion. And this happens a lot when we go to share the gospel with someone because they come from a different culture from us. And so you see, culture and language go hand in hand, and often what a culture values and thinks comes through in their language. So when we want to share the gospel with someone, we must learn to adapt our message well to their culture to have as little confusion as possible. And so we must do this with people in our own culture as well, because we want them to understand the hope that we have in Jesus So the question becomes, how do we best share the gospel with a culture that is different from ours? And the Apostle Paul is going to show us with three methods this morning. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 34. And here's our main point this morning. Trust in God to help us wisely speak to culture. So I'm just going to briefly give you a background of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is about the disciples of Jesus continuing his mission on this earth to make disciples of all nations. And we're seeing Paul fulfill that mission himself by going around to these other countries in the Mediterranean Sea and what we call his second missionary journey. And so that's where we're going to be. He's going to be in the city of Athens in this time, and so we got a lot to cover. So let's begin verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul went ahead to Athens. He left some of his traveling companions behind who were in a previous city they were visiting. But modern-day visitors of Athens will walk through the city, and they're going to see beautiful architecture, these structures, all of these sculptures in the city, and you're going to marvel at the incredible artwork that's there. However, when the apostle Paul visited Athens, these structures and temples and sculptures were active places for worship of the Greek gods and different pagan worship practices. And so it says here that Paul was greatly distressed by this. And actually in the Greek, this means he was outraged. He was very disturbed by what he saw. But he also shows great compassion for these people. As we're going to see, he's going to share the gospel with them in order to see them step away from that and be saved from the belief in these gods. Because their worship, according to Paul, in his mindset and his culture, the worship of these gods was not for just like empty 
little statues, but was a worship of demons and false gods. So for Paul, he continued his usual practice of going day to day to the synagogue, and he's trying to convince the people, the Jewish people, when he goes there, that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what he typically did. He would go first to the synagogue in order to convince the Jews of what was going on. And so Paul, going to these different places, to the marketplace, he's doing this relentlessly by going day by day. He doesn't stop. He doesn't quit. But he also argued with people, as I just said, in the marketplace, which is called the Agora, which is this historical place in the city of Athens. It lay just north of something called the Acropolis, which we'll talk about later, where there are several temples devoted to Greek gods. The Agora was the center of Athenian life, and so Paul would have come across all kinds of different people there to debate about Jesus and talk about their idols. Verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul preached the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. You see, in Athens, philosophy was a large part of their culture. The city was home to the famous philosophers of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and so many others. So it's no surprise that Paul encountered philosophers in his time there. But first, he met, they mentioned the Epicureans. The Epicureans believed that pleasure was the point of life. They wanted to live a life of tranquility, free from pain, disturbing passions, and they were and superstitious fears. They were deists. They didn't believe, they believed in their gods, but they didn't believe those gods were actively involved in human history. And so Stoics, on the other hand, wanted to live a life consistent with nature. They were pantheistic, or they believed that God is the universe. And so they wanted to be good moral people and had a high sense of duty as a result. And so these two types of philosophers disagreed on so many different things, but they particularly agreed on one main thing. Paul is insane for what he is teaching them and what he said. They call him a babbler. This was a disparaging term. It was an insult to Paul's intelligence. The term means someone who took a bunch of information from several different sources, just kind of getting whatever they want, whatever they need, and then peddling it off as their own. And so you can see how that would be an insult to this kind of culture. But then Luke uses this term, foreign deities. And it's the same charge that was actually brought against Socrates when he was teaching and why they brought him to the Areopagus in order to bring him to trial. And so what we're going to see is Paul's overall strategy is he's, he's to meet people where they are at and find some common ground in order to connect to them with the gospel. And so these philosophers were really confused regarding Paul's teaching about the resurrection. Epicureans taught that the soul died with the body, and again, the gods don't interfere with human events. So to hear that God came down in the flesh to die for our sins, and then he resurrected three days later would have made absolutely no sense to them whatsoever. And for the Stoics, Paul is going to smartly build his gospel presentation off of their desire to live in harmony with nature, showing that God is the creator of all things. But the issue that Paul is facing here is something we would call being lost in translation, how to make these concepts make sense in this culture. 
These philosophers are speaking in an entirely different cultural and religious language than Paul, and thus they do not understand what he has to say. And it's not as if Paul is failing at his job here. It's that he has to learn to adapt to the culture. Verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And so even if he is confusing him and there's a cultural translation issue, they still are wanting to know more about what he's talking about. So they bring him to a place called the Areopagus, which is in the shadow of the famous Acropolis. Now, many of you may remember, I went with a team to Greece, one of them being John Witherspoon right over here, and we spent some time on the island of Lesvos in the Aegean Sea on the eastern side of it, and we were miles from Turkey. There were different points where we could look across and just see, we could see Turkey. It was right there. But on our way home, we took a tourist day in Athens to kind of recoup before our long uh, flight home, and we took, checked out some sites, and our tour guide actually took us to the Areopagus. This was a life-shattering moment for me. This was amazing. So you can see this is the Areopagus. It's just this big rock formation. It kind of juts out uh, high above the ground, and you can see this is, this is all Athens. It's a gorgeous view. It was perfect, absolutely perfect day that we spent there. And so there is a plaque on there where it says, this is where tradition says Paul preached the gospel. And so right here, there would be all kinds of things that he could see, and this is where he preached. But the Areopagus would just sit there. The people of this council would sit there and talk about new philosophies. In the next picture, you would turn around from where I was presently standing when I took that picture. Turn around, and there is the Acropolis. Right back here, you can kind of see it, is where they're rebuilding the Parthenon, the, where the, the temple that was devoted to the goddess Athena. But you also have temples devoted to the god Hephaestus and then Zeus, also on this rock. It's this huge formation. And what Paul is doing... He is, he says he was earlier, he was greatly distressed at the sight of these idols, but where he's preaching about the gospel, he might have been able to just look and turn and see these fully formed, fully active temples devoted to these other gods. Can you imagine the stress and the anxiety that could create for a person? Because listen to what he says. Because in the shadows of the Acropolis and its temples, Paul places a stake in the ground proclaiming that his God is the only God worthy to be worshipped. And those gods that are on that mountain should not be worshipped. He will stand in front of this council and he's going to give an argument to believe in Jesus. And so the philosophers continue to speak in verse 20. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So this particular gospel presentation for Paul is just a mere new teaching of the day, the flavor of the month, you might say, for the Athenians and for this council at the Areopagus. So it all sounds strange to them because it doesn't make sense to them culturally or religiously. But Paul is being given this really great opportunity to speak at the Areopagus because sometimes what would happen there is teachers would be brought to trial for teaching things that were so contrary to what others had taught. And this is what happened to Socrates. But in this instance, it appears Paul is not on trial whatsoever, and he is just given, being given an opportunity to present his case in more depth because they are confused and these are strange things he's saying. 
But Luke's critique of the Athenians in verse 21 is absolutely spot on, even according to the Athenians themselves. Records have shown that they admitted that they could have an excess passion for things that were brand new and new teachings. And so in other ways, what Luke is doing here in verse 21, he's actually sort of throwing that insult back, that babbler insult that they threw at Paul. He's kind of throwing it back in their face saying, look at you. You have all these new opinions. You're picking it up wherever you want. You're peddling it off as your own. You are just the same as what you insulted Paul to be. But overall, when we look at this section, there's a very key principle of what Paul's practice is to adapt to the culture. And here's our first method. Go to where the lost are. You see, Paul was a missionary who traveled all over the Mediterranean Sea countries to share the gospel message. This is how he obeyed Jesus. But not everyone is called to this life. For the most part, a lot of us are going to be called to be here, to stay where we live and to reach people here. But Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 28, 18, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So it, and in the Greek, what, what Jesus is actually saying is, as you are going. And what it means is, is as you live your everyday life, be in the business of making disciples. And oftentimes, people think of discipleship and making disciples as sitting down with a Bible, and we're going to get serious, and we're going to talk about something very important today. Well, of course, you're talking about something important. But discipleship is even just the process of introducing people to Jesus who have never heard of him before. Whether you're at the grocery store or your kids' activities or sporting events, your school, your workplace, especially your neighborhood, you can follow this and go and be where the lost are and make disciples of all nations. So my encouragement to you this morning is to be on a constant lookout for who you could be building a relationship with so you can share the gospel with them. And don't wait for them to come to you. Instead, be intentional in everything you do. Invite people over to your house for a meal. Build a relationship with the barista that you get your coffee from every morning. Go through the same checkout line, no matter how long it is, at the grocery store to see the same cashier every single time to get to know them. Ask questions about who they are, what they like, their hobbies. Get all of that to get to know them as a person, to connect with them relationally so that when you share the gospel, they know it comes from a place of deep care and compassion for them rather than out of some sort of obligation or guilt. And we must not let ourselves be insulated by only spending time at the church with church people, but be seeking out people and, of course, be in constant prayer for these people. Keep a list of three to five people you are praying for that you want to eventually share the gospel with. But all in all, find ways to go to where the lost are. Let's continue verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So when Paul says very religious, it's a term with two possible meanings in Greek. It could, be pos- it could be a positive thing, like a compliment saying very religious as, wow, you are so devoted to your gods. That's impressive. Or it actually could be negative, meaning very superstitious. And I think actually this makes a lot of sense of what is going on here. The Jews tended to view 
the Athenians as superstitious because of their worship of so many other gods. And based on what Paul says in the next verse, this actually makes a whole lot of sense. And so it's also possible that Paul meant this to be a matter of fact. You are very superstitious. And then for some reason, the Athenians might have heard it as you are very religious. And they're like, oh, thank you. And they took that as a compliment, but Paul was just being matter of fact. You're very superstitious, guys. Verse 23. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So it's clear, Paul does his research about who the Athenians are, what they believe, what their gods were like. And this is something we've got to do too. Obviously be very careful about this, but we must understand well what other religions believe as well as knowing very well what we believe. Because Paul used this unknown God figure as a bridge to talk about Jesus with the Athenians. And it's true, we've seen this throughout history. It's reported that the Athenians had altars devoted to gods in Asia, Europe, and Africa all over the world, presumably to cover all of their bases and make sure that they appeased all possible gods that could exist. That's why they did two unknown gods. So they're like, okay, we think we have everybody, but let's get this last one to an unknown god. Let's get it all. And I think this is why it makes sense that Paul said, I think he might be saying they were very superstitious. But what Paul is doing here is he's asserting that this unknown God that they worship is the God of Israel. And Paul's going to tell them about what he, who he is and what he's like. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So Paul starts his argument by talking about a correct and accurate understanding of God. And God starts with the idea of God as a creator, like straight from Genesis 1, and that God is the Lord of all of the universe. And so already Paul has started off with a bang, saying something directly against the belief of the Greeks, that there is only one God who created everything and not multiple gods. And again, he's saying this while in the sight of the Acropolis with all the Greek gods enshrined there. And so it's almost like he's saying these things and pointing up at them and saying, nothing like what you have built could possibly contain this God. Can you imagine how terrified he might actually have been to say that, knowing how they might react? But what he's saying is, is this God, he's too big for it, not because of actual physical size, but because he is infinite, and he created the entire cosmos simply by telling it to exist. And so he's meaning there's no possible way an idol could fully represent this kind of God, and so it's futile to try. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So because this God is the creator of everything, he is not dependent on anything whatsoever, and he does not need us. We can't give him anything that he needs because we are the ones who need him. Instead, he is the one who provides life for all creatures on this planet, and it was gracious for him to do it. He didn't have to give us life. And so each of us owes our breath and life to him and him alone, as we sang earlier. Verse 26, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now, Paul gives, is giving the biblical account for how 
humans kind of got to where they are now. That God made all the nations to inhabit the earth through one man, Adam. And so the Athenians believed that they originated uh, from the soil in a place called Attica. And actually, as a result of this, they believed that they were superior to other people. But instead, what Paul is telling them is that all humans have originated from one creator and one man. But that God also gave boundaries to their existence, gave them their separate lands to live in. All of this points to this concept of the sovereignty of God. I talked about this a little bit last week, but that the sovereignty of God is God exercising his rule as the king and creator of the universe because he is the one who made it. And so he makes the kinds of decisions you and I cannot make, and he has the right to make those decisions because he's the one who made it. And so he's marked out times for these countries and kings to exist and rule. He's in control of the rise and fall of all these kingdoms. So we need to understand this. Sovereignty means there is not one aspect of human history and creation with which God has not been sovereign and in complete control. Now, this doesn't mean he has purposefully caused everything that has ever happened, including the evil, but that he is in control and nothing could possibly stop his story of redemption that is playing out before us. Verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. The purpose for God to act in this way where he makes himself like known and uh, kind of clear that he exists through creation was so that people would see it, look around and go, this is not possible, that this is here by accident, so I, so I need to find the truth. The verbs here give a concept of someone kind of blindly reaching and looking for something, trying to grasp something they're looking for. And it's this idea of someone who genuinely seeks the truth of who God is and wants to find him. God is going to make sure that that happens. And that in reality, God is not far from any of us. All that a person has to do is call on the name of the Lord, as the Bible says, and they will be saved. And so the universe gives evidence of God's existence in all of its complexity and its beauty but it does not then give clear direction into God's plan to redeem all of humanity. That is the story. That's the part that has to be searched for and pursued. And Paul is saying here, the answer is right there. You can find it if you simply just want it. This is the key to understanding everything Paul is talking about in this speech. It's one thing to understand that God has revealed himself to everyone through what he has made. But it's another to search for intimate knowledge and to discover God's redeeming plan for humanity. More on that in a little bit. But Paul draws from two Greek poems in verse 28. First, where he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. The source of that line is is sort of unknown, but it was potentially a widespread belief amongst many peoples at that time that people only exist by God's or in the case of the Athenians, the gods, only by God's creation and sustaining. But then the second part of that verse where it says we are his offspring comes from the Stoic philosopher of Aratus. The point Paul is making is that there is a shared relationship with God that all people have because he created them. 
We do not create him or contain him in idols, but he made us. And so Paul is using their own source material from philosophers that he's been arguing with to point to the truth of Jesus. It's a practice one of my youth ministry buddies in Vancouver calls finding redemptive windows into culture. See, we can pull from movies, TV, art, music, and find redemptive windows that point to the reality of the gospel, and it'll make sense to our culture. And so this is something we all can do, and we'll talk about this again in a little bit. But verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So now Paul is moving out of talking about the common ground, even though he's critiqued them in the common ground, but he's going to move fully out of the common ground into the things where he's going to critique their beliefs. And so being God's offspring means we are made in his image, and being made in his image means we are made to reflect God in everything that we do. Since we are beings created by God and are his offspring, we shouldn't think that we could create something to contain him with our own hands. And Paul has repeated this point over and over again. He wants them to get this. And And the reality is that what we should do is give honor to this God for creating us, because it is due to him. It's something he can do, we cannot. And so Paul is essentially saying that such a creation of idols, it's foolish and illogical. But then he says that God overlooked the ignorance. It doesn't mean that God's like forgiving their ignorance. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. Because then the worst possible thing that Paul could do is actually tell them about who Jesus is. What he means by saying overlook is that God did not address this evil of worshiping other gods as harshly as he rightfully could have and instead gave patience. But now because of Jesus, they no longer have an excuse for ignorance and what they're hearing from Paul. So what once was ignorance now must be repented of in terms of worshiping false idols. It was something that previous generations were absolutely guilty of doing, but now they have no excuse anymore because of what Jesus has done. God made himself available to be known through creation, but he made himself fully, he made his plan fully known through what Jesus did on the cross. But I always want to take a moment, whenever we see that word repent, to kind of unpack it a little bit because there's some heavy cultural meaning for us. Sometimes it can have this concept of someone standing on a street corner telling, telling people, repent or you're going to burn, and that's, they leave it there. They don't tell the good news of the story. Here's what repentance really means, because Paul doesn't get a chance to do that here. To repent is to turn from your old life of sin and having loyalty only to yourself to turn instead toward God and pledging your trust and allegiance to Jesus alone. It literally means a change of mind, that you change who is your God, who is running your life from yourself or any false idol like the Greeks were doing, and turn towards God. And it's to recognize that you and you alone have sinned, and you need the forgiveness of Jesus, which he accomplished for us by becoming human, living a perfect life, and then taking on our sin onto himself, dying the death that we deserved in our place, so that when he rose from the dead three days later, our sin was completely paid for. So that all we have to do is place our trust in him to repent, to turn away, and and his sacrifice alone, rather than our abilities to make ourselves right with God. 
So this is what Paul is trying to tell the Athenians. This is good news. He's not just telling them, saying, you're going to burn if you don't repent. He's saying, look, there's a great God that you can turn to who loved you and gave himself for you. And so the opportunity is here before every single one of us here this morning. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, placed your full trust and allegiance in him, you can do that today, this morning, before you leave. Please do that. Talk to somebody, the person you may have come with. Or if you've been going to church for a long time, there's a great opportunity here to recommit your life. You're feeling a little bit out of sync with the whole thing because God is not far off. He wants people to come to him. Verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul is very clear. A judgment is coming for all people whose deeds will be judged according to God's standards, whether for good or evil. The Greeks did not believe in such a judgment like this, so this would have been another concept that they didn't understand. God doing it, though, with justice means that because there is no one else like him, he is the creator, sustainer, and king over all of what he has created, he will always make the right and just decision. And it's going to be measured by the man he has appointed. For us as Christians, we know immediately he is alluding to Jesus here, who is going to be the judge of all humanity. And the standard is simply going to be this. Did you trust in Jesus alone or did you not? And the fact that this is true, the proof that this is valid, is the fact that he says he rose this Jesus from the dead. If he had stayed dead, then the whole thing doesn't make sense. But again, as we're seeing here, Paul is making sure to adapt his message to the Athenians to help them understand the gospel message. And so here's the second method, that we need to find redemptive windows into the culture that connect with the gospel. You see, oftentimes Christians have viewed culture as something that we have to steer totally clear of, but I think there's a, what we can do instead is we can use it as a weapon to find the redemptive windows, the times where culture connects to the gospel and use it in a way that points to the heart of God and his gospel. Because stories heavily influence our culture, this can be a highly effective way to share the gospel with someone. I do want to warn you, keep that within your conscience. If you think something might cause you to sin, don't use that. Find something else. There's plenty out there. But let me give you an example of how you could do this from a very silly Christmas movie. One of my favorite Christmas movies is The Santa Claus featuring Tim Allen. I probably like this movie so much because I love Tim Allen and Home Improvement when I was growing up. But in the movie, Tim Allen's character, Scott Calvin, becomes Santa Claus when the previous Santa falls off of his roof and dies. When you put it that way, this movie sounds really demented. But Scott then puts on the Santa suit, not knowing that there is a clause, the Santa Claus, C-L-A-U-S-E, like in a contract. Yeah. And this sounds so strange when you actually explain this movie. Okay? And so then when he puts on the suit, he's now Santa. That's what happens. But Scott Calvin goes through this significant physical transformation to become Santa, but the more substantial transformation happens with his heart and his character. At the beginning of, a, of the movie, he's a, a workaholic divorcee with anger and selfishness whose son doesn't want to spend Christmas with him. 
but he becomes this kind-hearted, loving, and attentive father who desires to spend time with his son and give generously to others. And so what you can do is you can talk about with someone the transformation of character that God wants to do with every single one of us when we put our trust in Jesus. We all notice inconsistencies with ourselves, and we want to change and be different. But the hope of the gospel is that Jesus wants to affect this kind of change through his spirit working in us. When we believe in Jesus, when we put our trust in him, his spirit comes and dwells in us and makes us new. And so we receive that, again, by putting our trust in Christ and what he did on the cross, not in our effort to change ourselves, because the problem starts in our heart, and we can't change that. Only God can. So do you see how that works? You can find redemptive windows in culture almost anywhere, including in a reverent Christmas movie. And let's close out by looking at verses 32 through 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people who became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So their reaction makes total sense. For Greeks, death meant the soul became a shade going to Hades with no possibility of returning to life. And so it seems the Athenians might have interrupted Paul and stopped him short of finishing what he was talking about, going into more detail, because they hear the idea of the resurrection and they said, nope, that's absurd, we can't listen to that anymore. But we can also see there's a mixed bag of reactions going on with, with how they believed. There's a small group of people who end up believing. One member of the Areopagus, one of these philosophers, comes to believe. And church tradition says this man became the bishop of the church of Athens. He became a leader. And so here's our last method we need to, to do. Trust the Lord for the results, not your abilities. Far too often we put way too much stress on ourselves to bring results in sharing the gospel with people. We might have one person reject us, make fun of us, make us feel stupid for believing in Jesus, and it makes us feel like giving up. But I want you to understand this. The Lord is the one who grows his church. The Lord is the one who does the work of bringing people to faith in him. He's the one who changes hearts and minds. Our job is to simply be the messengers, the deliverers of the news. You see, we are like newscasters presenting the news on TV. We present the good news, but it's not our job to make sure the people watching or listening respond appropriately. That's their job to do. So in closing, I want to encourage you with one last thing. I often struggle with anxiety when it comes to sharing the gospel with someone or even coming up here to preach when I have the opportunity. But I have a set of scriptures that I keep in my head that the Lord often brings to my mind when I come across these situations. One of them is Matthew 10, 19 through 20. Listen to this and be encouraged. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. See, we do not need to worry about what we will say or even how we are going to say it because we have everything we need. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It will, be, it will not be us speaking. It will be God's Spirit speaking. The Holy Spirit can be a better bridge of the language gap of culture than you or I ever could. So there's no need to worry if we simply step up and obey. So some final questions to close. 
What are some places and who are people you meet there that you could start building relationships with them to share the gospel with eventually? And how can you use the idea of redemptive windows into culture this week to share the gospel with someone? And finally, how can you learn to trust the Lord to speak for you rather than trusting in your ability to speak? And let's remember, trust in God to help us wisely speak to culture. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us your spirit to speak to culture. God, there is no way that we could do this without you. Father, we are in desperate need of your spirit leading us, guiding us. Father, we're so thankful, God, that you do not leave us to figure this out on our own, but you have given us yourself. God, help us to remember and be constantly focused on the gospel, how you saved us, so that, God, that would lead us to love others. God, that we would be motivated by your love. We love because you have loved us first. And so, God, may we trust in you. God, we know that the message and the call that you've placed on our lives is a difficult call, but, God, you have also promised to be with us. You've promised to speak through us. So, God, I pray as we continue our worship this morning, God, that it's focused on you. You are given the glory and honor for it. And, God, that we trust completely in what you will do through us. We pray this in your name. Amen.